This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Nova Scotia wants to make all adults organ donors unless they opt out. It works in Europe, but should we do it here? And why every woman should plan to be financially single. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. A 71-year-old Scottish woman with a rare genetic mutation may hold the key to new treatments for pain. Joe Cameron has gone through life without feeling anxiety or pain. She described her experience of childbirth as a tickle, and at age 65, she didn't realize she needed a hip replacement because she felt no pain. You cut yourself or burn yourself once, maybe twice, then you avoid that because your brain says don't do that. Well, my brain doesn't say don't do that. Researchers writing in the British Journal of Anesthesia attribute Cameron's virtually pain-free life to a deletion that removes the front of a previously unidentified gene. Some will argue this is the best job ever. NASA plans to pay people $19,000 to stay in bed for two months. The German Aerospace Center will choose 24 people to spend 60 days eating, watching TV, and reading without leaving the bed. Researchers want to study artificial gravity on the body to learn how to help astronauts who spend long periods in space. Applicants must speak German and be 55 or younger. Next time you plan some online shopping, put down that glass of Chardonnay. A new survey finds drunk shopping is a $45 billion industry. According to the U.S. tech and business website The Hustle, 79% of its readers admit to at least one drunk purchase, with the average inebriated shopper wasting and then regretting $44. People who work in transportation and energy are most likely to splurge when they've had a few. A French pilot remembered as a hero for his actions in the hijacking of an Air France plane to Uganda's Entebbe Airport in 1976 died this week. Michel Bacos remained with over 100 Jewish passengers held hostage for nearly a week before they were freed, despite offers of his personal release. Bacos received the Legion of Honor, France's highest decoration for refusing to leave the plane's passengers. He passed away this week in France at the age of 95. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. In a North American first, every resident of Nova Scotia could soon become an automatic organ donor. The province is proposing legislation to adopt presumed consent around organ donation, which means everyone is deemed a donor unless they opt out. Families will continue to be consulted about their loved one's wishes, and those under 19 or without decision-making capacity would be exempt. 
It's a system that's worked well in places like Spain and the Netherlands. I talked with Dr. Stephen Bede, medical director of Nova Scotia's Legacy of Life and Critical Care Organ Donation Program. We've been working on trying to support organ donation, organ and tissue donation, and for the better part of a little over a decade with our provincial program. And we focused on things we knew had to be put in place to be successful, like the involvement and support of critical care and organ donor coordinators that were trained and educated. So that's where we were investing our effort for for some years. And we tried to change the culture to be a culture that recognized and supported donations. So that was the work we've been doing. But as we work towards making a good system better, we had to look at other ways to improve and Presumed consent is something that has been used in some places around the world successfully. And interestingly, Premier McNeil, to his credit, has been very supportive of donation. And I heard about his interest in presumed consent several years ago, but told him that our system wasn't ready for it yet. And he uh, and his people approached us uh, about six months ago to see if it was a, a window of time where we might be able to consider actually uh, actually looking at uh, presumed consent as a viable path forward. So we said we'd be happy to do it, but we had to make sure our system was ready for it, and here we are. It's been very successful in some other places. For instance, Spain is the organ donation leader in the world, and they've had this for a very long time, I believe since 1979. Well, they have, but the interesting thing is that the law was passed and in place for roughly 10 years with no change in donation performance. But then they used that as part of system change in Spain that was largely focused on making the critical care community the leaders for organ donation. And we've seen an enormous increase in donation performance in Spain around the world. And so presumed consent is a component of what they do, but it's actually not one of the major reasons for their success. It's a contributor. And so other countries around the world that have used presumed consent, having done the right amount of legwork to prepare their system, have seen success. And Wales is the most recent example of that, for example. If this law passes, Nova Scotia will be the first jurisdiction in North America to have an opt-out system. How groundbreaking is that, and how hard will it be for some people to wrap their heads around? <laughs> it's significant, very significant, because it represents sort of a dramatically new way of viewing this opportunity. It shifts the focus. And there will be a small, but I suspect vocal minority, who will talk about how they don't want government controlling their body. We'll hear from them, and we need to respect their opinion and do something to recognize that. And we'll develop an opt-out registry. People that don't want this to happen will be able to tell us through a mechanism that we're going to develop. But for most people, they would want and welcome this, and that's how we're going to improve donation. Many people want to feel like if they're going to die but somebody can be helped through their gift, then that's a good thing. So those positives, I hope, will will greatly outweigh the legitimate concern on some people's part that government is telling them what to do with their body.
guiding families through this very difficult process will still require training and expertise. It's it's the worst couple of days that you can imagine for most families, and we want to make sure they're supported through it. Are you familiar with Ontario, and do you think something like that would work here? Well, I think this as a a bridge to make a good system better is something absolutely worth discussing. And I think it would work. But the caveat is, is again, we need to be respectful of the people in our community who do not want this to happen. And we need to make sure that if we're going to go down this route, that, that effort is expended on making sure the public are really well informed and that the healthcare community at large understand this as well. So you can't just write a law. That's just words on a piece of paper. But that law can be powerful if it's supported by other things. How much do you think this would or will increase organ donations by? I'm hoping that it uh, translates into a ballpark 30% bump in donation, which would be significant. What's the process now in order for this to become law? We're going to spend the next 12 to 18 months working to put the pieces of the system in place to be successful, including trained coordinators, donation physicians across the region, uh, an opt-out tool or registry, an information technology uh, tool to support our work, and a public and healthcare team education strategy. And all of that work is going to occur over roughly 12 to 18 months before we have the law proclaimed. That was Dr. Stephen Bede, Medical Director of Nova Scotia's Organ Donation Program. 90% of women will have to manage their own finances at some point because they become widowed, divorced, or have never married. Bank on Yourself is a primer on how to prepare. Authors are Del Harrison and Leslie McCormick drop by our studios. I have been quite passionate about helping women and uh, about the importance of women understanding their financial position. And uh, I was actually speaking at uh, at a CARP event and uh, afterwards Ardell, one of the uh, attendees, approached me about embarking on this endeavor. And I'd thought about writing a book numerous times and thought if someone's willing to co-write, let's go for it. And why did you want to do it? Uh, I am an avid reader of any finan- anything financial. And the years that I've read finances, one thing that struck me is never had I read a book that was written by someone like me, a female who had been on her own all her life and made all her financial decisions by herself. 90% of women will end up being responsible for their own finances at some point later on in life. And that is so exceptionally important for women, even in in a coupled relationship where um, the vast majority of women actually in couples actually abdicate that financial responsibility. They actually look to their partner to make all of the long-term financial decisions. And yet if women are going to end up single and needing to manage this on their own, the worst place to be is having lost your spouse, not understanding anything about finances, adding financial stress on top of what can be the most challenging emotionally 
experience that someone can go through. Uh, and to have to deal with that all at the same time, uh, I, I would much rather see women step up initially, be part of the conversation, be informed about your finances, and uh, and don't find yourself in that position having to figure it out when you're in your 60s or in your 70s. So you're trying to give women the benefit of your experience? trying to share the experience. There's value in talking. And one of our subtitles is ladies, we have an edge. One of our many qualities that are strong are we do like to share. And we like to share with our friends and we like to share with our female friends. But one of the taboo topics for years that I avoided talking about and probably others did too, had to do with finance or money. And without sharing or revealing what your portfolio is, you can still stand to support and learn from others, just like our focus groups did share with us. While there are a number of women who do take uh, a role in the financial decisions, it's... Boomers that I know for sure. Good. And I am glad to hear that because it is like my experience as an advisor is sitting down with women after they've lost their partner who has that partner has been the one dealing with all of these things and trying to figure out the investments, trying to figure out the plan, trying to understand how those bills were paid in some cases, right? For those who aren't active today, we really hope to encourage them to become active today. Women who are widowed uh, actually self-report a loss of 40% of their income five years after having lost their spouse. Do you find that the widows that you come in contact with are not aware of what's in the will? It's not so much what's in the will. It's being unprepared for where are those accounts, right? And whose name in, is are they in? How long is it going to take to get access to those accounts if you're not named as one of the account holders? Um Really bad husbands, I'd say, bad. if they didn't sort that out and and uh, tell their wives. Well, you know what, though, I have to say, I get phone calls from uh, from men who say, "How do I help my wife? She has no interest in this." What a lot of people don't understand is the income implications of losing your spouse. So, government benefits, right? You can lose up to about $20,000 a year of income simply because your spouse passed away, just in government benefits. Of course. Right? Mm-hmm. Pensions, right? A 40% drop in pensions. Can't income split anymore. You're going to pay higher taxes for that household income. On top of which, now your own government benefits, your own old age security might be clawed back. Okay. So, yes, but... What can you do about that? What I would love to see people do, and, and when we do financial plans, right, we always envision a long, healthy, active life together, right? And we always plan life expectancy to 95. But proper financial planning is also risk management. And when was the last time anyone ran a scenario that said, what if we don't both live to 95, Right? What if one of us is gone in our early 70s? How does that impact the survivor? Right? And it might impact things like the decision to maybe you do carry some insurance into the early years of retirement. 
right? Maybe you do save a little extra. Maybe there's different withdrawal strategies that are actually not going to hurt you as a couple, but will help in a survivor scenario. From a single perspective, if that doesn't apply, one of the things that I want to do is I want to live to be healthy and happy up until age 90. So asking my financial planner, how do I do that? Asking my medical team, how can I do that? And can I go beyond 90? What type of things should be in place for the person who's single and on their own as far as as they age and may need some supports? What type of things are there? So the book in, book includes some checklist for women of all situations and circumstances, be it today, be it what they could be in the future. I'm healthy now. Let's hope that continues for several years. But let's prepare. be prepared just in case it doesn't. People who may only retire with their government benefits and investments. Well, my advice is to save a little more, right? Go in with a little excess, right? And maybe there's a way to reallocate your a portion of your investments into something like creating your own pension. And what about the difference between your RSPs and RIPs that you're going to have to pay tax on and tax-free savings accounts where you won't? Right. And that's a really important point that you bring up, uh, where we see a lot of success when managing the investments is someone who retires with a combination, right, where we have that fully maximized tax-free savings account, every Canadian's most valuable account you can have, uh, where we have some non-registered, where we have some RSP, uh, because you do have financial flexibility to start the conversation, If you're not already having it, start talking about your finances. And if there is one thing that you can do to take and create your financial inventory, where are you at today? Have it all in one place laid out. Bring all your pieces together. Now, it doesn't matter what happened yesterday, but it's with that information that you can look forward. Ardell Harrison and Leslie McCormick are the authors of Bank on Yourself. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. Produced by Christine Ross, Michelle Saunders, Paul Thomas, and Andre Lowy. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.